6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Proverbs, chapters 10 through 14. Well, we're in the book of Proverbs, and we're going to address this evening chapters 10 through 14. Now, we had the first, what many people consider the first section of the book, the first nine chapters, obviously are behind us in their previous sessions. Wisdom and folly are contrasted in those sessions. Now we're entering that section which most commentators will just simply call the Proverbs of Solomon. And what they mean by that are the ones that he written and set in order by himself. There's a good chance, as you'll find out, uh, uh, Solomon wrote, what, 3,000 Proverbs and most of this book. In fact, possibly all of it, some under even some code names that we'll come to later, but uh, these uh, chapters, 10 through 24, are a, a set that he ordered himself. There's another group that will follow that, that were pulled together by the men of Hezekiah, uh, a couple of generations after uh, Solomon, but attributed to Solomon in any case. And uh, then we're going to have two chapters at the end that will be full of some surprises for you. I'll leave that be. But we're in the... Uh, uh, the first half, in a sense, of the section called the Proverbs of Solomon within the book. And uh, Proverbs, the book itself, is God's handbook on how to wise up and live. And that sounds glib, but it really is. It's, it's, that's exactly what it's all about. It's not just practical wisdom by Solomon, which in itself would be valuable. He was deemed in the scriptures the wisest man of his day. So hearing his the kind of uh, precepts that he teaches his kids would be valuable. But no, no, this is far more than that. And these words are, are far beyond simply keeping rules or laws. And it focuses on leading an aggressively dynamic life. This is not a passive call to avoid this or avoid that. It's a call forward to get a full, rich life, as we'll see. And it deals with attitudes, not just keeping rules. And uh, it's encapsulated in these very little pithy capsules. He's using a rifle, not a shotgun here. And uh, they're, they're, it's quite a collection. Now, I want to remind you something that Paul highlighted to his protege, Timothy. He said, all scripture is given by the inspiration of God. Now, that's a glib phrase. What does that really mean? In the Greek, it means God-breathed. We now know from computer analysis of the text, both Old and New Testament, that God had a, a, a supervision of the very letters of, the, of, the, of the, uh, the text. The text reflects the style and the form of the writer, but the, it nevertheless is superintended by the God himself. For what reasons? To be profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction, righteousness. What do those words mean? Doctrine tells you what's right. Reproof, what's not right. Correction, how to get it right. And instruction, how to stay right. 
So I, I throw that up there because we use those words pretty loosely, but they are definitive and distinctive. And so I'll leave that with you as we go. Now, wisdom is traditionally the ability to use knowledge in the right way, and that's, that's man's knowledge. Biblically, it acknowledges there is a wisdom of this world, but there's a divine wisdom from above, and we're going to find this divine wisdom permeates these, uh, these uh, Proverbs that we're going to review. Now, there are three losers that surface throughout the book, three class of losers, people who desperately need wisdom, the scorner, the fool, and the simple. Derogatory terms, but each one is di uh, distinctive in its own way. The scorners mock at God's wisdom because it's too high for them and they will not admit it. The Hebrew word for scorner literally means to make a mouth, and we can very well picture the smirk on the scorner's face. And they never profit from rebuke. And you know, it's interesting, as I've gone through 30-year executive career in corporate boardrooms, the CEOs, the chief executive officers that I've met, the real winners were great listeners. They didn't let their egos get in the way. They're all big ego guys for lots of good reasons, but at the same time, the winners never let that get in the way of hearing and measuring. And so the scorners don't are not like that. They, pro they don't profit from re rebuke, and so one day they will be judged. And uh, the other group is the fool. That's a person who's dense, lazy, sluggish, careless, self-sustained. Self-sustained, key point, key word. Nabal is the word in Hebrew for the fool, and the, Nabal himself was a proper name of an exemplary fool in 1 Samuel 25 that we talked about. This is just all by way of review of our earlier sessions. So the fool hates instruction, is self-confident, talks without thinking. How many of you know a fool? Okay. Anybody without their hand up wasn't listening. And, uh, and he makes a mock of sin. Realize that's a package. Not only do they talk without thinking but they also make fun of sin. We are all guilty of that. I catch myself in that too, sometimes in the, in the interests of some joviality, not taking sin seriously. Sin offends God, and when we joke about sin, we're showing a disrespect for God's prejudices and, 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 and attitudes. The third guy is the simple person. These are, the simple are those who believe everything and everybody and they lack discernment. Most of us think, gee, that sounds kind of innocent. We think of someone who's simple as sort of an innocent. Yes, but not if diligence is required. See, they're easily led astray and lack understanding. They cannot see ahead and as a result, they repeatedly walk into trouble. How many people know somebody like that? You bet, I, I shave one every morning. <laughs> In contrast to those three, we have the wise. They listen to instruction. They obey what they hear. They store up what they learn. They win others to the Lord. They flee from sin. They watch their tongue and are diligent in their daily work. This list is a list that we could easily post on our bathroom mirrors. Everyone is not just a platitude. It's, there's actually a proverb that there's at least more than one. I just picked a, a seven of them here that are to exemplify the fundamentals. And any of you that have been in a sport, in a sport situation with the coach, a smart coach focuses on day one, are the fundamentals. Get the fundamentals right, the other things will fall into place. And so the results, the scorner rejects wisdom, met instruction, he listened to folly and received destruction. 
The fool rejected wisdom, was led to death. He listened to folly and received death. And the simple rejected wisdom went to hell, and he listened to folly and ended up hell. So we have wisdom and folly portrayed rhetorically in the grammar as two women, each calling. And some follow wisdom, some follow folly. There is a verse we encountered in chapter 1, which many regard as a key verse. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You want to be smart? You want to be wise? Where do you start with an awe and a respect, a fear, healthy fear of the Lord? And, uh, but fools despise with instruction. We, will, we encountered in chapter 9, the end of that last section that we were through, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that's often quoted as the key verse of the entire book of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the holy is understanding. And there's nothing more important for us to understand. We can make a long list of things that it's necessary for us to understand about life. But the number one thing is to understand what the word holy really means. And to recognize there is such a thing as holy. And also to recognize that we have no capacity to imagine what it really includes. Our problem isn't just our sin. Our problem is we cannot even grasp how the purity of a holy God. It's the gap that's the problem. Well, uh, we also picked up a verse along the way as I was, I was scanning the last sessions to figure out what do I throw into the review part of our re thing tonight. I cannot dismiss Proverbs 3, verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. These are uh, of, of the verses in the book of Proverbs, probably my favorite. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not to thine own understanding. Boy, that's a verse. God finds a new way every day to ask you, do you trust him? Big things, little things, whatever. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not to thine own understanding and all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. What a promise that is. Boy, I don't know what God wants me to do. Well, he'll make it clear. You got to trust him. If you acknowledge him in all your ways, he shall direct thy paths. How does he do that? How does he do that? By the word, by competent counsel of your Christian friends, by circumstances, all kinds of ways. It goes on to amplify that. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. He, and it shall be health to thine navel and marrow to thy bones. So the, the first two verses, uh, th uh, 3, 5, and 6, are usually the standard for those of you that are committed to memory work. In chapter 5, we talked about last time about sexual purity. We emphasize that thou shalt not commit adultery includes all sexual sins, not just what we technically, denotatively might portray as adultery. All sexual, all sexual sins are prohibited elsewhere in the Scripture. Our Lord spoke of fornications, plural, different kinds. The Council of Jerusalem included that in, the, in the, the laws condemned by the law of Moses. And the words adultery and fornication are inclusive of all kinds of things. I just didn't want that to get by us here. Sexual sin will disappoint is the key th uh, uh, theme of Proverbs chapter 5. The experience goes from sweetness to bitterness. And I like the way that Proverbs emphasizes that be, you should always check the destination before you buy your ticket. Find out where it's headed. And uh, from, it goes from gain to loss. Temptation always has promises that are never kept, or otherwise people wouldn't take the devil's bait. Sin is the most expensive thing in the world. You go from purity to pollution. Sex within marriage is a beautiful river. It's interesting how not only the book of Proverbs, but other, uh, the uh, song of songs and so forth exemplify the erotic side of the married life. But sex outside marriage is, in contrast to that, a sewer defiling everything it touches. And we talked about that, we developed that last time, this is by way of review here. It goes, uh, sex, sexual sin goes from freedom to bondage. 
not the other way around. And it's the kind of bondage that can't easily be broken. Chapter 6 seemed to shift gears and talk about business principles. And uh, we had a list of things that God hates. It shocks many people to realize that God hates things. He's a God of love, yes, but he also has a list of hates. And what's number one on God's list of hates? A proud look. Look on everyone that is proud and bring him low to tread upon the wicked in their place. A lying tongue. That's a close cousin. I said, I said, all liars, deliver my soul. And we don't have to develop all this all the verses, again, I think it's pretty obvious that God is a God of truth. Third on is this, the hands that shed innocent blood. Heart that devises wicked imaginations. Feet swiftly running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that sows discord among the brethren. They're all close cousins. As you see the things God hates, they all have something in common. And that's basically a form of pride and deceit that derives from that. Proverbs 6 then closes again picking up the sexual sin theme. That sexual sin results in losses. The earlier part of that chapter dealt with business practices, but the last part points out that one of the ways you lose is through sexual sin. You lose the Word of God, you lose wealth, you lose enjoyment, and you lose, they lose their good sense, people who indulge in these things. And they also lose their own peace. And uh, so... But we want to remember as we go through these things, the Christian's bar of soap. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Whose faithfulness are we leaning on? Not ours, His. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Because He promised to. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He'll do the cleanup stuff. You do understand that a fisherman, that the fish are cleaned after they're caught, not before, right? Okay. Chapter 7, the lure of the harlot. And here we talk specifically about whoredoms, the path to destruction. He, there are three things that tempts the young man that's there portrayed. He tempts himself, first of all. Then he's tempted by the woman. That seems straightforward. What shocks you, he also, he tempts the Lord. We often don't think about that third part. Compromise typically starts in our own heart, in our own, by the very fact that we might be in proximity of, of um, the temptation. That's where it starts. Then, of course, he's tempted by the woman who's uh, the instrument, Satan's instrument in the fall here. But then, as he yields to all of that, he tempts the Lord. What do I mean by that? We tempt God when we deliberately disobey Him and put ourselves in situations so difficult that only God can deliver us. That's exactly where we find ourselves if we go down this path. So we tempt ourselves, tempted by the woman. We also tempt the Lord. Now, in Hebrew hermeneutics, just to review that, there are four levels of meaning in the mind of a rabbi. Peshat is the direct, literal meaning of the text. The remez is the allegorical significance or maybe a hint of something deeper, and we're going to experience that when we get to chapter 30 especially. Then there's the dirash. That's the practical personal application. That's the part that the minister takes Sunday morning to do a sermon around. Okay. But there's a fourth level. Now, these three have their correspondence in Christian hermeneutics. We probably put them in a little different order. The direct, the, uh, uh, the uh, homiletical, and we usually take the allegorical as the, as the last. But they, the, the Jews do it this way for some reasons. And then they have a fourth. They call it the sod. That's the mystical, hidden meaning of the text. And uh, 
They, they, they memorize these four by the word pardes, which means garden or paradise. But the point is, we have not dealt so far in the book of Proverbs in the remez or the sod level of meaning. We will before we finish the book. But we did encounter in a sod aspect of Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. It's one that I personally don't really embrace particularly, but in fairness to you, I thought I'd at least let you be aware of that our rabbis that see uh, in Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 recognize that Solomon is the collector of dark sentences. He loved enigmas, and it's very typical Solomon style to have hidden underneath the text another thing. The harlot may be, can be portrayed as Babylon, the Nimrod, the hunter of men, Simiramis and Tamas legends that led to all the, all the false uh, 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 forms of idolatry. Uh, Christmas, Easter, all that has its roots not in Christian things, but rather in previous pagan practices. And uh, fornication is also clearly throughout the Bible spoken of as spiritual unchastity. And to, to worship false idols is considered whoredom. And so some rabbis see in Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 a mystical level of meaning, which basically there's nothing new in the New Age. It's simply a repackaging of the old Babylonian legends. And uh, from God's point of view, hard. So I'll, I'll leave that for you to, if you see it, great. If not, don't worry about it. Let's move on to chapter 8. This is, the, this is in some respects the dessert. We've gone through all the 5, 6, 7, all that stuff. We have wisdom's chapter, which is a chapter that clearly portrays the person of Jesus Christ. And uh, he said so in Psalm 40. The volume of the book is written of me, he says. And um, I always love Edmund Spencer's quote. I use this a lot in our Bible studies because there, I call it the scorner's creed. You see, there is a principle which is a bar against all information, a proof against all argument, and it cannot fail to keep man in everlasting ignorance. What principle that could be? What principle is a guarantee that you'll stay ignorant? The principle is condemnation before investigation. See, the only barrier to truth is the presumption you already have it. So part of the thing you want to bring to any Bible study is to set aside presuppositions and listen to what the text is saying. And there's a number of places in the Bible where that's crucial, to really hear the text, not cloud it with traditions of man. And uh, so I, it's interesting, as we get into Proverbs 9, verse 9, give instruction to a wise man and he will be wiser. Teach a just man and he will increase in learning. That's all through the New Testament you find this. He that has, he that has tomorrow will be given. He that has not, that'll be taken, even that which he has. You listen, it sounds like double talk until you understand what, what's being portrayed there. God will give you some truth, and depending on what you do with it is de determines whether you get more truth or not. And uh, you teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. Well, gee, if he's a just man, he already knows it. No, there's always, always more to learn. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the knowledge of the Holy is understanding, and this, of course, is the key verse of the entire book. For by me the di thy day shall be multiplied, and the years of thy life shall be increased. If thou be wise, thou shalt be wise for thyself, but if thou scornest, thou alone shall bear it. Ooh. So just to summarize, I threw the summary in here too because I thought it would capture the whole flavor of the first section of the book. We cannot avoid decisions. It's not voluntary. Your decisions you make determine your destiny. You can either choose the path of wisdom or the path of folly. That's the choice that has confronted the reader all through the book of Proverbs, from cover to cover. And, uh, if you, and you have that choice. You can't 
you can't split it. You're going to be on one path or the other. And the question that you have to think about is what decisions have you made? If you're a professional in, in, in decision theory or game theory, you're familiar with risk analysis, or even if in, uh, there's a field of uh, mathematics called the design of experiments, you're taking about reality or what may be really true, can, uh, something you're trying to investigate can either be true or false, and your attempt to, to, to sample that to, can give you a conclusion whether it's true or false. And obviously, if your approach is sound, if it's true, you find out it's true, and if it's false, you find out. That, that, that's clear. The problem is, suppose you're, the methods you're using cause you to reject that which is true. That's called in statistics a type 1 error, after naming Pearson and that crew. That's rejecting a true hypothesis. The other type of error is when you accept a false hypothesis. So obviously, determining a false, false recognizing a false hypothesis as false is good, and if it's, if it's true, recognize it true is good. The real problem is, will you fall into the trap of a type 1 or type 2 error? Well, what you can do is you can analyze the implications of each one of those errors. And Pascal was famous for this. He said, let us assess the two cases. If you win, you win everything. And if you lose, you lose nothing. <laughs> that says it all, doesn't it? it says, don't hesitate then. You want to wager that God does exist and so forth. But anyway, uh, sin is always alluring. Folly, folly does everything she can to make sin look attractive, but she never re reveals her true nature. She never tells people that her house is on the way to hell. And the only way to detect folly is to walk with wisdom. So you want to examine wisdom to know where to go. Don't have to worry about examining folly. It's, it's, a, it's a losing proposition. And those who walk with wisdom, obeying the word of God, will not easily be tricked by folly. It takes time for judgment. Many people think, gee, I'm doing okay because nothing's wrong that's happened. Well, that, that's judgment eventually will catch up. What a man sows, that will he also reap. You find Galatians 6, 7 echoing all through the book of Proverbs. Satan always appears, appeals to the flesh. And uh, we don't have to develop this here. God continues to call, fortunately. But when sinners refuse to obey, they eventually become deaf to God's call. That's the scary part. Okay, some caveats. Let's, let's shift gears here a little bit. One of the things to recognize that we're going to see embodied in the book of Proverbs is a lot of experience, not simply theological dogma. Some of Proverbs' assertions work, may seem to be inappropriate for the world you and I live in. Some of these will sound kind of quaint. Well, gee, they probably worked great in Solomon's day. They, they, they're not too practical in today's world. One of the reasons you may feel that way is because they may reflect the wickedness of our world. I spent 30 years in the corp in, in public uh, boardrooms of public companies. That's been my primary executive career. And I have to tell you, I am absolutely shocked at the lack of ethics in the business world. Because even in Wall Street, where you might have had immoral men in the sense ungodly men, they still had an ethic. My word is my bond. That's what made the financial structure of this country great for a century or more. But that's gone. The byword in the street now is so, you know, is so sue me. There'll be two guys negotiating a deal while their attorneys are suing over the previous one. That's just the way of the street today. You look at our politics. It's astonishing 
to see the carnal partisanship going on about our troops while we have put them in harm's way, that should be called treason. Yes, those debates should take place, but there used to be closed sessions for that, not where you're doing it for the TV cameras, because there's election year coming. Also about the Proverbs, the generalizations, we need to recognize that even in these, uh, among some of these Proverbs, there will be exceptions, and your challenge is to understand the generalizations and the exceptions and take both into account. So there are no glib, simple answers on some of these. Now many of these, you need to recognize that the apparent injustices that are alluded to in this life are dealt with in other parts of the scripture and you can count on the fact that God is just and that somehow it's going to be straightened out. You need to have the confidence not in the world, but in God's ultimate rulership of that world. If there's injustice in Satan's world, no surprise. But God is in the ultimate control. Now I want to share something else, because we're about to enter a portion of the book of Proverbs that will seem like a hodgepodge. The first nine chapters had some structure and order, and I tried to lean on some of that for your uh, help, hopefully. But there's also something else I'd like to encourage you to try. See, I, when I take a book, whether it's Daniel or Isaiah or whatever, the first thing I try to do is understand how it's organized, and I try to use that structure as we teach it. When you get to something like Proverbs, it is a hodgepodge of practical little things and lofty ideas. and all, it, it, it doesn't lend itself easily to being cataloged or organized, what have you. I think that's the Holy Spirit doing it deliberately. And one of the things, one of the characteristics of the book of Proverbs, don't laugh, I'm not being flippant here, it has 31 chapters. And we have 31 days in our months, typically. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Proverbs. Download the K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the iTunes or Android app store, or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.